Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today I'm here with Kison Patel. Kison is the CEO and founder of MA Science, providing the best crowdsource-based educational resource and technology solutions to the MA industry. Aside from geeking around with finance people, Kison loves sharing entrepreneurship life lessons that he learned along the way. Listen closely. If you're thinking about buying a business, growing it, and selling it, Keeson is the guy that talks and works with your potential buyer on a regular basis. Welcome, Keeson. Thanks for being on the show. Hey, thanks, Ron. My pleasure to talk to you. You know, I, I always I always start off in the same spot. How did you end up in M and A? Tell us kind of how you got started in this and how it connects to uh, where you're at right now. That would be great. Well, I can tell you, it was not the traditional. Went to Ivy League school, went into banking at Goldman Sachs, and, and wound up here. Uh, in fact, it was the opposite. I failed out of undergrad, uh, like literally with academic deficiency, had a very short attention span, struggled and uh, found myself in a tough spot, but aspired to get into real estate, thinking that was my path forward to find success. Found out I was terrible at selling houses, couldn't quite make the emotional connection with those type of sales. Wandered up in a little startup that was uh, building a boutique m advisory practice. And got my start there. Worked with that firm for about a year. Wanted to go in a different direction when it came to strategy and areas of focus. Started a practice at a pretty early age, around 2003. Built that up over a decade. Ended up working with a focus in hospitality for most of that time. Uh, Started small private assets. Got up to working with larger corporate chains like Kimpton, Extended Stay America, La Quinta. And then uh, went into the financial institution, working with community banks, uh, helping big banks buy little banks, small banks sell. And that led up to the recession where I uh, felt like I hit my wall in the advisory side because you're always living deal by deal. Wanted to do something different. Got into the tech area. Found myself in the startup that didn't pan out the way I wanted to but it exposed me to the way software engineers were utilizing project management tools. I thought this is really interesting and something that our industry needs uh, or M&A needs. And started a company deal room in 2012 with the goal of bringing that project management functionality into the industry. Learned a lot of hard founder lessons and building a tech startup over that following five years. <clears throat> Around 2017, Things started really picking up for that company. I got into podcasting, started a podcast called M&A Science that evolved into a digital media business of its own, where today we have several different business lines. We have a a spinoff product called Firm Room, which is a self-service virtual data room. We run an online academy program, M&A Science Academy, and we have a few books published. But all things related to education and technology serving corporate finance. Awesome. So as we were saying in the intro, I like I want the guys to really hear this out because you work on a day in and day out basis with corporate M&A, like guys that have billion dollar valuations. And most of my audience and, you know, a lot of the guys I work with and network with, 
they're buying companies doing roll-ups and stuff with the intent and or even hope you know in you know, hope intent goal strategy <laughs> to eventually sell it to those corporate buyers eventually sell it to those pe firms and stuff so i want i want everybody to realize today that you've been working in that space for a while you're going to have a deep insight into you know what those big corporate guys uh corporate you know m a want what they're looking for and you know what what trips these type of deals up you know and stops stops it from being able to sell or get full valuation right so we were talking a little bit about the show about like integration and um you know what it looks like on that on that side so i think we can just dive in and say what is your biggest concern or what's the biggest thing that's on your mind right now around corporate m a for us it's been an interesting journey we've seen the last five years a big transition where the industry traditionally operated on a finance focus spent a lot of time creating a model forecasting synergies getting your board to approve it go out and buy the company hope everything else goes well well if you look at all the research it points to hey integration phase either makes or breaks your deal now we see a bigger emphasis on that when you look at how integration goes well it's all about the people in the end of the day. People have to be motivated and they have to be aligned on goals. That's what drives those results. You gotta have good leadership. Now we're seeing the shift from a finance focus to a people focus in M&A. Uh, what does that mean? Taking this end state of where you're trying to go, what you're trying to achieve, and bring it to that front end of the process. Can executives align around this end state can that person that's going to be responsible to execute these integration activities to achieve that end state be involved early to help outline what this go to market is going to look like what's it going to look like for the customer uh, well, how's that journey going to evolve because each organization has their unique way to serve the customer what's that going to look like when these organizations come together and then as you take that, that outline and move forward through a diligence process, you want to create a work stream that runs in parallel to your diligence to be able to plan on how you're going to integrate these companies together. And it should be an iterative process that as you learn about the company you're acquiring through a series of diligence, uh, that you can update your integration plan accordingly as you learn about risks and opportunities. And then I think there's also an element with the company you're acquiring to help them understand your organization, where they're going to fit into it, what it's going to take to make this integration successful. So both teams are aligned on the objectives to, to make it happen. Um, that, that's probably the, the, the big premise of what, where we see happening and changing. I think for me, what's on top of mind specifically within that is that go-to-market integration because each company has a unique way of going to market and bringing that together. It seems like that's the fail point. When you model out synergies, we're going to acquire this company and you can't just buy a company expecting it to make money and things are going to be fine and dandy. Not in this market. It's a hyper-competitive market. You have to do things to create value on top of that. And that's how you're going to get that valuation number for a successful exit. Um, so with, with that, there's obvious cost energies. If we don't need two CFOs, two accounting functions, two support functions, we can combine them 
likely you're going to eliminate some roles and systems, and that's going to allow you to capture it. Pretty straightforward. People tend to go right after that. It's the revenue synergies that get really complicated because your go-to-market motion is across functions, and getting that alignment to come together is where things go awry. I mean, that's one of the more difficult parts. And I think even for myself, I've reached out to some of the best of the best in industry and they still have a lot of uncertainty that, Hey, we're, we're still learning this. We're still trying different things and figuring it out. I think for um, myself, the, the big top of the mind area is understanding this go to market integration, really trying to synthesize some learnings uh, and, and see what kind of uh, adjustments can be made to capture more value make me more successful. You know, I, I, there's entire libraries or sections of libraries on change management. And, and, it, and it's due to the fact that people resist change. So when two companies, uh, one acquires the other, they merge or they come together in any sense, there's change for the customer. So I, integration, I can see the go-to-market strategy. And in the side of that conversation, you mentioned what are the customer's expectations? Those customers have a built-in set of expectations, the way they've been treated, they expect to be treated, the quality of the product and everything else. So I can see, the, and, and how they're marketed too, like what the message is and everything else. So that whole go-to-market go strategy. Is there a process that you've already, like you mentioned that you talked to a bunch of people. Has anybody kind of got an outline to say, here's how you figure out what the current customer experience is, you know, what the expectations from the customers are, Right. And then, you know, how do they align or how do they overlap and where's the gaps? Is there any, is there anybody out there doing that? So I would say it starts with, there's a leadership alignment component, right? The leaderships of both sides align with what the goals are. Because if you don't have that, then you don't have a great start. So that, that's the, the primary. Is the strategies, are they aligned on it? Do they have some pillars of goals, what they're trying to achieve, how they see go-to-market coming together? Um, so the leadership alignment is key. Messaging comes after that. When you announce an M&A deal, you automatically just created a riff across the board between your internal employees, vendors, and your customers with a bunch of uncertainty. All right, that's all you created. Well, as soon as you announce that deal, how do you counter that? That's where you got to communicate a lot to add clarification uh, that you can answer a lot of these questions. You know, what does it mean for the employee? Am I going to have a job? What's, you know, what's, uh, who's going to pay me? What was this going to affect my benefits? And who am I going to be reporting to? Right. Then you, you got your vendors. <laughs> like, what's that? Is it going to change things in our relationship? And then for the customer as well, you know, how is this going to impact them? Do they have to have concerns about the way their, their service is going to be changed? Uh, so the, the more you can communicate that, I, I think I've seen a lot too. Now we look at press releases for M&A, there's a lot more transparency in what that strategy is. This is what, what we're doing. Usually there's a good reason you do M&A. You don't just buy a company. I mean, especially these days. You buy a company, buy a bad company, it's probably a bad idea. And you're going to lose a lot of value of money on it. When you build an aligned acquisition against a strategy and what the company's trying to achieve, then there's, there's a good rationale behind it. Maybe it's around capabilities. That because we're buying this company, it's going to add capabilities to our stack that's going to make our offering much better and allow us to serve our customers better. You know, th those are great things. And we're seeing that transparency. So communication is key. Answer, even delivering bad news is fine. 
We're, yes, we're going to lay off 500 people, but we're also going to create 750 jobs, or maybe we're going to create 300. We're going to create a good transition process. We're going to support these team members through helping them identify other roles in the organization or support them to transition to roles outside our organization. You know, we're not just putting them in a bad spot. Communicate. That's the, the number, number one thing. I think with this, too, in terms of other lear learnings around the go-to-market integration, um, I'm still learning this, right? But there's this MPI model a lot of large organizations have. When you're small, you, you do a product launch and, and you do it, and it's pretty infrequent activity. But when you're larger, it becomes more frequent, and a new product launch runs across so many different functions in your organizations that have to be aligned to make it successful. So they usually will build this MPI model, a new product introduction, um, in M&A, there's a model where you can have a modified MPI model for those new products that you're acquiring. Um, you're not going through as much as an organic approach, but when you can acquire a product, you can run it through that same type of process and, and be able to allow your teams to get aligned, the product marketing, the sales team, and, and the training and resources they need to, to make that successful. So is this a, is, you know, sometimes there are some problems out there in the world where nobody's got it solved yet. And that's because it's extremely, you know, complicated and it's not an easy solution. If you Google right now and look for why M&A fails or why mergers fail or why acquisitions fail, and you look at all the examples, right? You know, how many times have AT&T bought a company, you know, and end up, you know, five years later, sold it for pennies on the dollar versus what they paid for it, Right. And it's, you know, it's if you look at what, you know, top reasons why M&A deals fail, almost every time it's integration, right? You know, they, they bought it, failed to integrate it in. If, if, if you could solve this or if you could come up with a system that works at, you know, different, you know, and, and, there, and it's different, the small, the medium-sized business versus corporate versus, you know, global enterprises, they're going to have, you know, a different system and process. But I think the, the core of it would be the same, right? So it, it's, it's complex. It's complex to varying degrees because how you integrate a company could be sliced and diced a different day, different ways. The depth of integration goes in different way. Are you doing very light, partial, full integration, transformation? So there, there's different ways. And then the business you're acquiring, is that close to the core or far from the core? So there, there is a lot of factors. And when you look at what integration actually is, it's the largest magnitude of change management this organization is going to go through. You're essentially peeling back layer by layer, years and years and years of processes that were created and reattaching it to another organization. That is, uh, it's complex. And it's not something computers can solve. It's not a, a quantitative exercise to figure out algorithms to do this. It's highly qualitative. At the end of the day, it's people-to-people -people challenges that you're going to come across, and those aren't easy to solve. It's interesting. Somebody asked me, why did you get out of computers and go into marketing and, and stuff? I was like, computers are logical. They're very zero and one. If there's a problem on the computer, it's usually the idiot that programmed it or the idiot on the side of the keyboard. <laughs> it's rarely, rarely the uh, like the computer itself or the hardware, unless there's a hardware design flaw. But I'm saying humans are absolutely intriguing. And what you're dealing with inside of this integration is the entire scope of human psychology, right? Resistance to change, fear and uncertainty, doubt, all that stuff comes into play. 
like, you know, everything from and all the way down to the customers. The employees need to know that there's a potential future. There's an upside at the new company. There's, you know, you know, there's a lot of communication that needs to be done inside of that to create excitement and remove that fear, uncertainty and doubt. I think people try to do that, but do less of it on their, on the customer side of it. You know, you see companies all the time that one acquires the other and they make the big announcement, but there's nothing else. Right. Um, you know, my wife worked uh, as one of the trainer, you know, and people over at DirecTV when AT&T bought it and nothing went like, there was an announcement that AT&T bought them, but you know, it just kind of like looked like it was going to stay the same, right? Uh, the customers didn't see anything different, except for they kept getting features rolled back, like the 24-7 report, uh, support went away. All this stuff started going away. And next thing I know, AT&T is like, well, this isn't working. I got to sell it off. So I think that was a failure in communication. I honestly think that, and, and, and you've been around this more than I have, so I'm, I'm, I'm putting this out there to get some feedback. Is like, are we on the right track? It's, communication is the key. Thorough, you know, in-depth communication, set expectations, live up to those expectations through all time, every, every communication channel you can open. You know, is that one of the factors here that would help solve this problem? Or Oh, big time. That's a huge is having a good communication strategy. Usually you have a con department you'd work with uh, for the corporate side. And then uh, you'd want to make sure they're getting inputs from the right stakeholders uh, across that, that whole timeline of them going through the process you know it looks like it'd almost be easier nowadays with all the social media and the, like people put their feelings out online constantly like with the right tool with the right tools i think you can actually judge uh, customer and client sentiment they're there how is the market feeling about you at the current time and and watch those conversations and communicate online with them. I, I don't know how many big companies are doing. I know that at the small level, my guys, the guys I work with, they're not doing that very often. They might have a social media manager, but they're not actually actively monitoring, tracking, and looking for conversations about them. So, yeah, you don't uh, you don't see that too much. I mean, just corporate social media tends not to be overly sophisticated to begin with. It's like send a bunch of data out and don't listen to anything they say about it. That's the gut feeling I've got from the big guys, like the top corporate guys is, you know, content, 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 but not a whole lot on, you know, interacting and listening as to what's being said, you know, on the content. What are the comments like? What are the, you know, um, you know, what's the what's the consumer feeling about this, like this change or this uh, thing? And then we talked about if you, that's the consumer side of it, right? A lot of people are, there is that brand loyalty. People are going to just stick with something until they are so mad they need to switch. But your vendors and everything, uh, you buy, two companies buy each other and they're, and they're manufacturing or merged together and they're manufacturing similar items. Those suppliers have to be concerned. You know, does, does the other guy supply? You know, I don't have the other guy as a supplier. Do they get a better deal? All right. Um, like, I, I still think everything everything here inside of business, and, and it intrigues me because I think everything in life has to come down with conversations. I often just say that everything you have now, everything you ever want to have in the future, everything you've ever had in the past, all comes down to the conversations you've either had, avoided having, or probably should have. Like the what separates the difference between you and I, and God forbid a bad example because of his recent history, but like Donald Trump, is who we're talking to and what we're talking about, right? I'm talking to small, medium businesses about buying, you know, auto uh, mechanic shops and pest control companies and all kinds of stuff. You're talking to corporate guys about, you know, 
you know, corporate deals and stuff. And he's out there trying to build new golf courses and taking, you know, and billion dollar transactions. So it all comes down to communication. So where do they start? I mean, yeah, I mean, when we think about where things go wrong, it, it does fall back to communication. We've seen the stories before you sell a company and then after you sell the company, you're watching it get, get destroyed. Uh, you, you know, next thing you know, you're looking back and seeing a sinking ship on fire and have a lot of regrets on, on the transaction because it is, especially as a founder, you worked with this team. They're like family and you want to see them in a good spot. Um, and that's why you almost need to make that part of your exit strategy. Is the primary goal purely the capital or is it also to take care of people? You know, that, that needs to be part of it. I mean, the, the big thing, I don't know how you, I don't know if you teach it in some ways you can, um, you can always look online and just find questions that you can ask. But I, I think that's what it comes down to is really expanding on the questions that you're asking. If you're owning a business and you get approached by a buyer, a lot of times we, by default, have our perspective in what we're looking to get out of the deal. Capital gain, getting that check at closing. Um, you, you know, what other factors, right? A lot of times we don't get into what's going to be my role after this deal's done? Are they going to want me to stick around for a transition period? Do they not want me around at all? What's, and we don't really clarify that. Or if I am, they're going to put a retention model where maybe they build an earnout into this deal. And now I'm part of this for another two to four years, five years, who knows? And what is that going to look like? My title is going to be different. I'm not going to be CEO anymore. You know, what, what's the reporting structure governance going to look like? What kind of autonomy do I have? Because that's probably not going to be as much as I currently have. Um, and we don't really ask those questions. We don't. We don't discuss those things. I, I, I think there's just other things that you have to shift that framing to the buyer's perspective, and really understand. And it helps you understand the value of your business better too. A lot of times we misconstrued what the value of the business is. It's not you go get an appraisal and here's the value of your business. That absolutely is not the case. The value is based on the buyer's perception, the based on what the buyer believes your company's worth. And it's different buyer to buyer. You got a PE firm and it's barely, purely based on your financial performance and past performance. Great. They're probably going to construe some kind of multiplier on a formula and that's where they determine your value. Or if you're dealing with a larger strategic and all of a sudden they're calculating all these synergies around cost synergies, how they can take your product and incorporate it into their master, mass, massive distribution model and, and create all this revenue, you have a very different view of looking at the value of your business. It's really important to, to understand the buyer's perspective, how they're looking at your company. And I, I, I think it starts there. Because you want to understand what's the strategy. Why, why are they actually interested in your company? Is it the people? Is it the, the product? Is it the revenues? Is it the market? What, what, when you understand that, I think you just keep with that same curious mindset and just really ask questions. You know, what, have you done this before? Was oh, it your first time doing an acquisition? Okay. <laughs> There's probably a lot that's going to go wrong here. Uh, hey, you've done this before. You've, in fact, you've done about five a year for the last few years. Great. 
can I go talk to some of those other CEOs that have that you've acquired? You know, can I hear their story and experience? You probably, uh, probably, you might get a no on that one. You know, how many CEOs go, "Hey, I love the check I got. I hate my new job." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And then that might be a sign right there if they don't. Yeah. I've seen organizations that are great acquirers, and they're happy to make those those reference introductions. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think that that's just digging into it, like asking how well thought out. Okay, great. Here's your strategy. How are you going to do that? How are you actually going to execute? I mean, you understand the why you're interested, uh, what it is that you're interested about it, but how are you actually going to do it? Now, how are you going to approach integrating the companies together? What's that going to look like? You know, what I'm hearing here is there's a there's a commonality, um, like in the in the space that we operate in, and and the and the people that I work with operate in, and kind of, you know, small to medium enterprises. That you know, I'll leave it at that because that's a pretty broad spectrum. Rapport is key. Right. Those business sellers want to know that the business is in safe pair of hands. I call it before the board. Right. Once there's a board of directors in place, it becomes a little bit more about numbers and performance and other stuff. If, you, if you're if you're buying a business that's still owned by the original founders or the founder's family and you're dealing with one or two people, usually there's a lot to do with, you know, brand uh, like loyalty or, or uh, you know, legacy, I guess is the word I'm looking for. Legacy. Uh, how well, you know, safe pair of hands for the customers, safe pair of, uh, pair of hands for the employees. But it sounds like even, that has to carry on inside of the corporate side of it, too. That rapport, knowing who your buyer is, what they're wanting to do, you know, that still carries there, even if they've lost sight of it. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, you know, the, the, it is a little bit unique company to company, like who your stakeholders are. I think that that's another factor of it because you could get thrown off. There could be some some surprises there because people have different look. I begin digging and ask those questions to understand what that entails. And yeah, I I think there's there's resources you want to tap into, and I think Ron, you're probably familiar. There's a whole ecosystem of experienced folks, and if you can tap into that even ask other people, especially if you can find people that have done deals in the similar space, they're probably going to be a lot of value. Uh, I mean, the worst thing to do is just rush into things and not have the right consideration, in the right places. And you make some mistakes because those are expensive mistakes when it comes to M&A. You can't take it back. So in the, in the space that you operate in, you know, there's, there's kind of a standard. Everybody, everybody in this space knows that. Like prior to 1.5 million, in the in most industries, uh, every industry is a little different. But uh, in most segments out there, uh, before you hit the 1.5 million in EBITDA, um, you're probably getting a one to three x unless it's a strategic purchase. You mentioned that strategic purchase earlier, and they they the valuation is different because of the synergies and the all that. Um, can we talk about like the valuation model and does the integration or how, how well they believe it can be integrated in, you know, did that, does that come into that, into that valuation model? I mean, this part of it, it's almost part of whether you should do the deal or not. If you can integrate it, you, you, there's a big emphasis we've seen shift in the industry on the people side. Um, with that comes understanding the culture elements of the organizations because we, we've seen some of these fabled deals that um, Daimler, Chrysler, 
you know, German company buying the, the iconic American manufacturer and there's a lot of cultural rifts and why that was a difficult time for the, those uh, employees of the companies. Um, and I think that's, that's a big risk factor. If you can buy a company and all of a sudden it just, the cultures don't mesh at all. It doesn't work out. Uh, so I, I think emphasizing that becomes a bigger thing earlier. If you can get an understanding, sometimes it's between executives talking about values and what does that actually mean? We start talking about values, you expand into these things that help you understand cultures of the organization, help you understand the leadership approaches. It was one organization very top down versus bottoms up. That's not going to blend well together. Uh, helps you understand decision making approaches, problem solving. I think that that's a big factor that's really becoming more important when you when you do think about those elements of uh, getting people involved to to actually make integration successful. Um, and, and so that that I think for the buyer that's a big part that they're looking at. Then if you get in, depending on the deal, right, what, what are we actually buying? What are we putting together? If it's specific things around technology, you may have some technical views on how is this product going to integrate with our stack and, and things of that sort. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think there is a good amount of consideration because you don't want to buy a company where you plan to integrate them. You can't integrate them. That creates problem or the opposite. You think you're not going to integrate them and then you do need to integrate them. Is there a uh, is there a play here? I, I, we talk to exit advisors all the time on this show, and one of the things they'll say is, uh, when business owners come to them and they want a certain number, they recommend that they work for the next couple of years, two to three years, to get their books right, get the revenue up, do all these different steps to maximize that valuation. I honestly think there's they're missing a piece if they're not looking at their culture, right? If they look at like where's my culture now and the environment now and what the customer's expectations now are and who are my maybe top five acquisitions targets, people, the top five to 10 people that would, would consider buying me and uh, what is their culture like and where are the gaps? I think there's something to be played. If you're going to spend two to three years prepping yourself for maximum valuation and you don't deal with your corporate culture, I think you're making a big mistake. I just seen a deal bust uh, in the due diligence process, we were, uh, I was just, I was just kind of advising, jumping in on certain conversations and helping the guy, you know, through, uh, private channels. And, uh, the reason he backed out of the entire deal was after talking to some of the other key executives, the CEO manages by screaming, stomping his feet and throwing a fit. Right. I mean, this guy is kind of very brass and, but that's the culture people there expect to be yelled at when they don't get something done. And the new buyer's like, I don't know how to manage like that. The CEO swears that the guys won't do it if he doesn't do it. And I was like, that's because in my response to the to my my friend who was in this deal, this is, it's just like kids. If you train them, and if you yell at your kids every day, they won't do anything until they're yelled at, right? If your employees expect that, they're waiting for it. They're kind of expecting that that's the people. The people that you hired that stuck around and tolerated that, that's the culture you created, right? So I think culture is critical here. I, I think that in, uh, in the, the environment, 
I think you can shape that towards those buyers, you know, as, as we're doing, you know, we're, we're about to kick off another roll up. We haven't, we're, we're tossing uh, two different ideas up as to what industry, but the number one thing we got to look at is who are our top 10, you know, people would buy us and what are their cultures like, what are their environments are. So as we buy these different companies, how do we adapt them, shape them and kind of fit that mold, right? We do that on IT and all this other stuff. If we know all the guys in this space use Agile and they use, you know, God forbid, QuickBooks or whatever other accounting system, as we're doing our integrations, we move to those systems because that's, you know, the top 10 people that might buy us. We're going to have to change it anyway. Some some percentage of the people that we're working with already that we're buying or acquiring or rolling in use that, right? So why not pick something that's most aligned with the, our potential uh, suitors? I think the culture has to be done there too. What do you, what's your, you know, if I, if I was going to sell a company in two to three years, there's those little things, the cleaning up ops and books and stuff, but I would start courting some of those potential acquirers. I mean, a lot of these large corporations will have a department called corporate development. That's responsible for inorganic growth activities, which majority entails acquisitions. And, that's our job is to know the market, know when opportunities may arise for their organization. But to even make that introduction and saying, hey, you know, I, I see what you got your company's there and wanted you to just to know about us. Um, a lot of times you can even just talk about informal, wanted you to know about what we do, but even explore potential partnerships. I got that. That might be a good place to start. But at least get those early conversations to learn about their organization. And they do. Corp Dev knows it's not a short tail process to acquire a company. It could be long tail. I talked to one that uh, spent 10 years to, to you know, acquire a company to finally acquire them. Um, and I've heard even longer. But, you know, so they know. And I've got, we've got it, even our space. I got the, the Corp Dev folks of potential companies that acquire us. They check in once a year. They want to know how we're growing, what's that looking like, what, what's shaping, and, you know, the timing's right. Yeah, we, we may make something happen. Uh, so yeah, if yeah. I was at, I would start courting, you know, and, and it, it, there's a different model of selling, right? You either go very strategic, you take this approach. You know, at some point, it's nice to get an advisor that's experienced with this. And if you get to a point when you want to be very proactive and create a competitive auction process, then you could go through a selection process to hire an investment bank to help drive that kind of process. Um, but if you really want to spend the time to understand culture and that real, how these organizations were fit, especially if you're prioritizing taking care of your people for long-term succession, then it, it makes sense to do that. If it's just objectively trying to get the highest price, then hire the best bank to do that. Uh, you know, it kind of depends on your priorities. But if I'm playing the long game, I, I would start courting some of these buyers earlier. You know, it's it's done more than 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 most people want to publicize. I I worked in the tech industry before I came to Oklahoma. I got into real estate and doing what I'm doing now in the mergers and acquisition space. One of the tech companies that I work for, um, we switched CEOs, and the CEO that came on. It was eventually, he was an executive from the company that eventually bought us. And hindsight shows that they, they invested in the company. We needed a new CEO. Like they invested significantly in our technology, like one of our core uh, seed investors, right? Um, we needed a new CEO. One of their executives stepped down, came over, implied, got the job as our CEO. And within a year and a half, you know, 
they bought they bought that company. I had left to go get my MBA at that point, but they bought the company, and then that that gentleman and I won't say names here, but that gentleman ended up being the CEO of the big huge tech company that's been around for you know dozens and dozens of years, right? He's since then stepped down and owns a, a venture capital company now. But the point is, is that slow tail integration that was I think that was brilliant in the fact that company was kind of pre integrated in, right? The CEO for over a year, year and a half was from that culture, grew up in that culture that, you know, the, the acquirer, you know, uh, had their eyes on us and we needed somebody. They just basically uh, sent somebody over is what it looked like to me. Maybe that's not true. Maybe he really quit, came and became the CEO, and then they wanted him back. So they bought the company for $370 million. <laughs> but, you know, um, $365 or whatever it was. But uh, I honestly think it's done a lot more than people think is that slower integration that's like okay we're probably going to sell to these guys we need we need this role they have somebody let's bring them in let them run it change the culture change the you know systems processes make it integrate in and then you know maybe they'll offer a better offer um is was that just a one offer has that happened more than i than i've seen uh so, so say that one more time like i asked if that like do you, have you seen that before i guess is a better question have you seen that for before where um like big tech company or big you know big company has one of their executives running a company that they intend on acquiring uh, within a year or two yeah i mean there's a, there's a, there's such a variable in that in terms of a lot of times you typically want the current executive to stick around usually two years is sort of a goal to create a retention package around because that way it's relatively smoother um, but then you have times when there is more imminent and they'll find somebody in a business unit or that's the goal is they're going to integrate it into as more of an add on acquisition into one of the existing units, relieve the, the executive and, and have uh, one of their current leaders take over. Yeah, the original founder of this, and I, I, he wasn't even there when I got there. I met him a few times. He's jumped in on a few of my networking things that I do for mergers and acquisitions. Now, he, too, is a VC now. But um a venture capitalist. But um, so in that particular case, the owner, the guy who the founder created it, raised the money. He'd already stepped aside and had another company, you know, had other CEOs running it. He was working on other projects. He's a serial, you know, he created, you know, multiple com- you know, tech companies. And um, so I, I just think maybe that's a one off. But I, just, I thought it was brilliant after from a hindsight. Now that I'm in this space, I seen it as absolutely brilliant. And uh, yeah, we see, I, see some fun deals like that. People yeah. exit and then come back, buy the company back. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think there's this. I had a good interview with Tim Wentworth. He was the CEO of Express Scripts. And I liked how he framed that a lot of times people think after the deal's done for a CEO executive, it's kind of like career end or they got to move on. But for him, he's sold businesses where it was an opportunity for him to further grow his career where he ended up becoming a CEO of even a bigger unit. Uh, so I, I think that's kind of an interesting view, too, is when you think about selling your company, it may not be end of the road, end of the story, but it could actually be beginning of a new chapter and open up more opportunities for you to continue growing. And I, I don't think that's the mind frame most of the time when we look at doing these M&A transactions. You know, I just thought of that. I've never had either one of those guys on the show. I'm going to reach out to both of them and see. And quite frankly, if uh, 
if they agree to it, when we get done with the show, I'm going to recommend they talk to you too, because they're at your space now, right? Like I'd love to talk to them, learn from them and stuff like that. But I also give a third party, uh, you know, uh, edification to you and what you do in the M&A uh, science podcast, um, because I think that they would be great. And I'll just say it. It's Enrique Salem from Symantec, who now has a VC firm and uh, Sunil Paul, who, uh, who had created, a uh, he, he created Brightmail. And then, uh, so I'm going to reach out to them, see if they want to be on the show. And then if, if they do, we'll see what we can do about getting them, getting them your way too. Just, I think they would be great guests. Um, they've bought and sold a, f- a few companies since then. They're investors. Uh, I think Sunil, correct, might be, I might be wrong, but I'm 99% sure. Uh, Sunil Paul was a seed investor or one of the early investors to LinkedIn. So, uh, they've nice. been around for a while, but, cool. uh, yeah, so the, I, I'm just curious of this space and how it translates down to the small to medium enterprise market. Uh, a lot of times our guys are just trying to get a deal done. And and it, I think there's some foresight to be to, to be had by looking at it and going, how do I grow this into what fits in that uh, mid-market space, right, to the next level up? Uh, if you talk to anybody in the small to medium, their, their objective, their goal is to cross that line and get the higher multiple, right? You know, as well as I do, there's tiers, uh, you know, you operate under a certain level of revenue, your tiers are your multiple or your evaluation is going to be one level. And if you get above that, you start attracting the big corporate guys, you start attracting, you know, uh, strategic purchasers and stuff, and you can get, you know, a multiple that's a multiple of the last one, right? So you can get one to three X for most businesses below this. You can start getting five, six, seven, you know, 10, 11, 12. I think there's some industries out there doing 18 to 20 X, uh, not unheard of on uh, EBITDA. But uh, I think there's, I, I think there's something missing there in our space. Like I think people are not looking at that corporate culture and how to develop one that's just easily if, if, if they're really going to keep it for five to ten years and or three to five years or whatever their goal and timeline is and then sell it to a bigger a player um i think they're missing a step if they don't like understanding how the buyer thinks it goes back to that because if you can you go out and talk to the private equity folks your corporate strategics Talk to them. They're pretty candid. They're like, hey, this is why we wouldn't be interested in you now, but maybe down the road. And just ask them, how, how do you look? I, we do it for our company. How, how do you yeah. look at valuing our company? And I reach out to the, the corp dev folks that look at businesses like ours, and I ask them, how, how, what do you see in the market right now? I'm just curious. And we're not looking to sell right now. I'm, I'm having a fun ride, but I'm, I'm curious to get a sense of what, what you're looking at. We did that on our lot. We did that on our last project. Our, our, our CEO uh, was reaching out to the big P&E firms and some of the potential uh, strategic guys and said, hey, we're building this thing. But if we were building it for you, <laughs> what would you want us to build? And we took notes on that and we actually started applying that. And uh, so I, I, I think that there's I think there's a lot of synergies all the way up the food chain, right? Whether you're buying, uh, I think it kind of drops off if you buying the local laundry mat or the, uh, you know, you know, some, I think if you're below seven figures, if you're buying something small, uh, you're probably going to be an owner operator for a while. Uh, but if you're, if you're starting to get into the play where you're buying these companies with the intent to grow them and secure them and, you know, hand them over to a P and E firm or hand them over to, you know, a billion dollar enterprise, um, you know, there's some conversations and stuff that need to be had along the way is what do I need to build? What do I need to design? Right. 
inside of this corporate, not only just to go market strategy, the corporate culture, customer expectations, all that stuff. The learning journey. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So uh, we're about 40 minutes into this. I want to make a quick stop here and just make sure people know how to get a hold of you. Right. So double check that for me. It's uh, uh, put your LinkedIn uh, profile. Cool. So for everybody that's listening, it's K-I-S-O-N-P-A-T-E-L. You can uh, look, look him up on LinkedIn, and it's the standard of LinkedIn.com slash N, and then his name spelled out K-I-S-O-N-P-A-T-E-L. K-I-S-O-N-P-A-T-E-L. That'll be in the show notes. That'll be in the, uh, the description of the show. And you'll be able to reach out to him. Is there any other way you would like people to contact you? Is LinkedIn your preferred? Yeah, I'm, I'm mainly on there. I'm not on a lot of other social media. <laughs> yeah, cool. Um, let's talk about um, what's coming on. What's, what's happening in your world right now? I mean, uh, we've got a, we've got about 10, 15 minutes here left. Um, what's coming up on the M&A Science Podcast? What's coming up in, in inside of the content and the courses you guys are putting together? Is anything cool coming out? Oof, boy, it's a lot. It's a lot to keep up with when you have different <laughs> business lines. That's what I learned. That's why I'm like, no, no new business lines. Let's just keep building what we're doing. Uh, you know, for us, um, hiring is brutal. So we're proactively hiring across. We never in our company history have been hiring across every function. We're 35 people, and we have 13 open roles right now. So um, that that's a big challenge that we're working across. Uh, I think the main product line that we have is Deal Room. .net and that uh, that one's doing well. It's a it's a lot that we're investing into it now. That's sort of at a good place. Um, so really excited about just seeing the direction it shapes because it's just you know we talk a lot about AI and things like that and you're like all right how practical is this stuff? Um, I think that industry in the next five years you're going to see a lot of tools evolve that. You know, you see it now in the marketing and the sales space. We actually do use some of this technology and it looks really cool. And I think that's going to start moving over into finance. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm excited in that particular area on the tech side. I think for us, what's unique and been our positioning is that we do all these interviews. We identify patterns from them to find proven techniques and we aggregate it, document it, publish books and handbooks and all kinds of resources. Um, I think that's starting to really catch on, you know, because our industry has been lacking that. M&A hasn't had a lot of standardization. And I think people are really realizing objectively everybody wants to make M&A successful, uh, that they're tough, they're complex, they're lot of resources involved in making these deals happen so now we're, we're starting to see a shift there as well where companies are being more proactive about adopting the practices that allow them to execute better it's interesting as uh, i've taken a few courses and stuff uh you know we've got more college degrees than the average fool should have but uh when i decided to do something new i was like i'm not going back to college for this i don't need another mba but there are people out there that know this space so uh, kind of like in the real estate space, I went out and hired a few of them, uh, and they're reasonable. Uh, I think the top courses are around twenty grand for the year. Uh, you guys have some really cool courses, courses that look like they're geared more towards that corporate structure and stuff. Um, but none of the ones that are at the level below, like the small to medium sized businesses that I've seen, have a clear cut deal room type of solution. 
and be honest, uh, your, your price point's kind of outside of the scope of most of these guys, thousand bucks a month since they're starting, right? For, yeah, it depends. You know, for our software solutions, they, they do range quite a bit. I mean, we can do some pretty expensive stuff for larger companies. But we do have our academy program. It's like 150 bucks a month if somebody's that's, interested. That's a great price, yeah. I, I would say for us, too, we're big advocates of the diversity in our industry. We do have a, a scholarship program that uh, enables two years of, of access through all best-in-class training templates. So if anybody, women, people with diverse backgrounds, there's a program they can apply for on our, our website, too. Cool. So I'm a disabled vet with an American Indian card. Does that count? I'm teasing that. I would gladly pay. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I did and I, you know, just I, I've seen the deal room and I thought, well, you know what? And, and, I, and I've seen I've been through some of the courses and there's no clear cut, you know, do this, then do that. Uh, this is where due diligence cl uh, clicked in. So I actually created one inside of my Asana and it's I've got a business acquisitions workflow right you know generate the leads you know build rapport you know start asking questions about financials like all the way through there well, okay now it's time to look at uh, cultural i actually have cultural on there cultural uh legal financial due diligence you know uh you know, submit the letters of you know i have a step by step through there and i'm you know from looking at your website you know i was like i built something that was crudely very crudely kind of what you guys you know built out on on the bigger scale so uh but it's missing it's i think it's really missing inside of the uh that that small business acquisition space um you know i i've, I've heard people coming out of these courses going okay but what do i do next and i was like well you just grab the reins and run i guess it's like uh <laughs> you know it's kind I, of I'm a good i'm a good attorney like start <laughs> there <laughs> so um so one of the questions I love to ask is if somebody's just now, you just mentioned your corporate sponsorship and, the, and that type of stuff. If somebody's just getting started out in this space and they want to get into mergers and acquisitions, maybe they're in college, maybe they're not, but they just, this is the space that kind of intrigues them. What's your advice to that, to those individuals? Like, where do they start? Well, you know, there's more than just the investment banking roles. I feel like you could always find like a little boutique bank that may not have, such high pedigree requirements. Um, but then there's a lot of these roles outside of that. There's the corporate side, there's private equity. There's a lot on the back end. We talked about integration a lot in this interview that there's more of those project management skills are required for the, that type of uh, activity. So I, I would expand the scope and just look at these different areas. A lot of the consulting consultants are hungry to hire and have entry level roles to get into um there's a legal side there's uh yeah there's a lot of different little niche providers that serve into the MA space but i would widen the scope and just see what kind of opportunities are in there because once you can get in then it becomes a lot easier to move around it's awesome so uh, pick a spot get in and start getting some experience is what i heard uh did i misinterpret that at all no that's a, a absolutely cool and then the other one i would say is um you know, with everything going on in the M&A space, all the opportunity that's out there in front of, you know, I mean, so many of these businesses, they, they, they just must change hands. And that's at all levels, right? Um, you know, 
they just in the next 10 to 15 years there's just a huge opportunity in this space what excites you inside of MA? like what are you really excited as to what's happening in the space this uh, space is just a massive opportunity to make improvements this thing is really behind times in a lot of ways uh so for us it's fun it's just everywhere you go there's a lot of opportunities and i, I could foresee myself spending a good significant amount of time just continuing to identify areas that we can build solutions, go to market with various um, products. So that, that's what excites me about the space. It's just wide open for disruptions, improvements, enhancements, all kinds of things are there. And I don't think it's going away. And when we look at what's driving M&A today, it, it's not just um, the typical things. Like we're just trying to grow revenue market share. There's a lot of companies that are, their biggest threats are these little up and coming startups that can come and totally disrupt their business. So for them, when you think of these large, you know, and, and, and remember the exact stats of, hey, 20 years ago, here's the Fortune 500 companies, what percentage exists today? Um, but nobody wants to go out. Nobody wants to be the the, the blockbuster, you know, of, uh, you know, Kodak type of company. Um. So that, that's where these acquisitions are driving that, that you essentially need to disrupt yourself. And what better way to do it than through an acquisition? You know, can you, but it's hard. It's really, really hard. Those transformative acquisitions where you're buying a company to really disrupt your business lines, it's a way to stay relevant. Uh, and we, I see that continuing. And you look at the good acquirers, that's what they're doing. They're constantly disrupting their business lines, adding on the capabilities, really trying to stay relevant as possible. Uh, and, and they're the ones that are going to come out ahead. I got it. So uh, we're at the top of the hour and I hate, we could go on, you and I could go on for quite a while here. I, I really enjoy this conversation and stuff. Is there any, like, what's one big takeaway? If you could leave uh, the audience with one, like if they, all they've remembered is one thing from this conversation, what would you want that to be? Be dumb. You know, a lot, a lot of times we enter our conversations with people, interactions with, a lot of things in our mind, where we want to take the conversation, where, what points we want to get out there. If you can get rid of all of that, if you can get to this point where you can assume what you know is wrong or that you know nothing and intently listen so that you can understand the other person's thinking, understand how they feel, why they feel that way, what their goals are, what their challenges are, and be able to align yourself around those goals and challenges, you'll find yourself in, in, in a better spot. When you take the time to listen first, then people tend to, to reciprocate and they'll, they'll listen to you and you end up progressing things a, a lot better and faster. So be dumb. Well, I really appreciate you being on the show. And I, I, if I honestly, I'm looking forward to watching you and see what you do, because if you can solve that uh, integration issue and actually create a, a system inside a deal room or inside of one of your other tools out there that helps companies even improve a slight bit of integration and, and become more successful in that, I think you'll be parking your jet right beside the lawn musk and, 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 tormenting, <laughs> and tormenting companies like Twitter like he's doing, right? I just think there's something there. It's a huge problem to solve. And uh, if anybody's, you know, got the tools and the team around to do it. I think you've got a, a better shot than most. So I appreciate having you on the show. I'm looking forward to seeing what you do. And uh, maybe maybe in a year or so we can actually sweep back or maybe shorter. I don't know. Swing back around and see how that's going and what you guys got. And, and uh, you know, 
see what impacts going on in, inside of that integration space. So thank you. Hey, thanks for the kind words and enjoy the conversation, Ron. <laughs> All right. I'm going to end the show now. Thank you guys, everybody, for watching. And uh, we're going to end this. This is the show. Have a great day. Hang out just for a second. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show, ask questions, uh, suggest a guest, or even tell me about a business you have for sale, and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline and leave us some information. Thank you. The Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind. The Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind combines the traditional peer-to-peer -peer mastermind introduced first in Napoleon Hill's famous book, Think and Grow Rich, with accountability partnering where your peers help you ensure that you set goals, take actions, and get results. If you want to scale, blow past roadblocks, and achieve success faster than you might think is possible, I suggest you take a visit over to TIEPM.com. That's T I E pm.com and check out the investors and entrepreneurs professional mastermind.